So, I, and also because I, I usually often forget to uh, mention events that are coming up. So, uh, we have some flyers out there for the 16th annual five-day intensive meditation retreat. It's called Buddhism in the Twelve Steps, but it's mostly uh, the Buddhism part, actually. A lot of meditation. It's in October, October 1st to the 6th at Vajrapani Institute. Several people here have been on that retreat. And um, we're doing it again. So if you're interested, uh, grab a flyer. We do have some uh, scholarship money if you can't afford the base rate. It's uh, the 1st to the 6th, so it's like Tuesday Tuesday night till Sunday noon. And uh, if you want to know more about it, you can talk to me during a break. I also have my two self-published books out there for sale. The workbook, Buddhism 12 Steps Workbook, and Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. So those uh, are cheap, $10. That's one of the advantages of self-publishing. I don't have to pay the publisher as much. Self-publishing, interesting. I have to think about what that could mean. Publishing myself. Maybe that'd be like putting a lot of tattoos on yourself. I don't know. Um, uh, well, if you didn't know, my name's Kevin Griffin. And we call this class Dharma and Recovery. Uh, the Buddhist uh, recovery world uh, the part of it that I'm not particularly involved in is in somewhat of turmoil as refuge recovery has split, some people have split off from that. So there's now something called recovery dharma, which well, since I do dharma and recovery here, it's definitely, um, I think I'm going to sue them actually. Cause, <laughs> and if you know what's been going on, you know that that was even more funnier than it than it sounded. Uh, so, uh, what we do here, uh, usually, at least every time that I can recall, is that we meditate for a while, and then maybe we'll talk about meditation, get some questions, and then have a break, and then uh, some sort of talk. And uh, we'll see what that is tonight. Uh, it's been uh, definitely not uh, or not in uh, Lake Wobegon anymore that's for sure nor are we in Kansas uh, I'm not sure where we are but uh, it's getting kind of dark uh, out there and uh, it's getting dark in here right now maybe that's why I'm dressed all in black um, anyway I don't want to depress you right away I'll do that later <laughs> But let's start by meditating and um, maybe we can clear out some of the cobwebs. Hmm. So if you're sitting in a chair, you want to be upright and really not use the chair too much for support. Kind of uh, try to hold yourself upright. It's kind of one of the the reasons that I like to sit like this uh, because I can't really cross my legs anymore, but um, I can sit upright maybe for a couple more years. Then I'll be teaching from a bed 
They'll just roll me roll me in. And, and, uh, okay, sorry. So, uh, you want your feet to be on the floor if your feet reach the floor. It's okay if your legs are crossed. Any way that you can be stable. You know, posture isn't about looking good or, or really being in some special spiritual you know, shape. But, um, but sitting in a way that you can be alert and, and be very still so that you can cultivate a quiet mind and observe your experience. You can close your eyes or you can just lower your gaze. Some people find it uncomfortable to have their eyes closed in a group setting. Oh, it's fine to have your eyes open. I think it can be interesting to just see what you notice. What's the first thing you notice? Rather than trying to start by controlling or directing your mind, just seeing what your mind is up to right now or what your body is up to. What do you notice? And seeing if you can let the body settle, soften, Certain points in the body tend to get tense. The jaw is one place. We often hold tensions, relaxing your jaw. The belly. The belly is another place where tightness, we kind of clench. So just soften the belly, let the breath move deeply into the body. So there's a sense of even as you're holding yourself upright, a sense of release, kind of allowing the body to be drawn towards the earth, allowing gravity to hold you. Tune in to the sensations throughout the body. We start to pay attention See how much is going on all the time. Usually it's overlooked. Our attention is elsewhere. But when we tune in, we discover that there are sensations throughout the body. The skin. So 
sensations inside the feeling of the heart beating, of the chest and belly expanding and contracting. Let your attention travel through the body just to notice the highlights where there are very clear sensations, bright sensations. And then in contrast, you might just note the points in the body where you don't feel very much. The quieter parts of the body. Mindfulness of the body can focus on a single point of sensation or it can have a more broad awareness of the whole body or areas of the body. We can open then to sound as well. In this quiet meditation hall, just tuning in to whatever you can hear. An occasional sound from outside. the sounds of the building, the air conditioning and fans, sounds of people in the room, sound of my voice. Seeing if you sit Hear sounds inside your own body. Awareness of the body, awareness of sounds. Bringing in just an acknowledgement of 
mood right now, if there's any clear emotion or mood that you're feeling. Just acknowledging and feeling that. And finally, letting the attention arrive at the breath. This can become our primary focus, our concentration object. The feeling of breath at the nostrils or the feeling at the belly. Feeling of breath at the nostrils is the touch of air coming in and out. Very delicate, subtle. The breath in the belly is the movement, the feeling of rising and falling. Let one of those places be the focal point for your meditation, the primary focal point. Even as we have the breath as the object or focus of attention, you don't have to close the mind. It can be Spacious awareness of body and sound and mood can all still be there in the background. And one of those may push its way into the foreground if something strong happens in those areas. But the idea is we're not trying to concentrate like looking through a magnifying glass. Rather, sitting in this spacious mind with a primary focus, but a kind of easy focus, not an effortful focus.
whenever we notice that we've drifted into thought, we acknowledge that and gently come back. Thoughts have a powerful pull on our attention, even an addictive quality. So we'll likely be coming back many times during a period of meditation. but not turning that into a struggle. Just a recognition that this is the nature of mind. It's craving to think, to calculate, to figure out, to plan, to remember. Anything to avoid just being. So it takes persistence, and yet that persistence needs to be gentle, kind. Otherwise we're in a struggle with our own minds. We're just creating more suffering by fighting with ourselves or trying to force the mind in one way or another. It's up to you to make the effort in your own practice. Nobody can do that for you. It's up to you to determine the quality of your effort, whether it's skillful or less skillful. Are you striving too hard or are you just sitting back and 
nodding off. Can you find the balance of alertness with calm?
that helps. You all are kind of spread out. That's your prerogative. It'll keep my neck nice and loose. So I keep trying to look at you all. Um, And I'd like to take this time for questions about meditation, if there are any. Andy has a microphone that you can be heard over the din. There we go. It's just, it's helpful for the, and some of the people are using uh, hearing devices that Good. Sorry, couldn't you're professional or just <laughs> sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, no, I don't get paid for that. So I guess I'm amateur. Um, question about body sensation and meditation for longer periods than we might be used to. Feet falling asleep, uh, neck that needs to maybe twist around. Do you say go for it, or do you say breathe into that sensation and let it pass? Um, take care of yourself versus separate from thyself. Are those my only options? Or, 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 or C. <laughs> or the middle path. Yeah. Or some variation. Yeah, um, that's a good question. It, it's, um, Were you having some problem, some discomfort? Uh, just the feet maybe starting to fall asleep. Uh huh. Yeah. I took the. I took the. Uh huh. Maybe because I'm kind of on the front. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certainly benefit from uh, be just the stillness, and then. Uh, you know, working with the sensations up to a point. You know, you don't want to injure yourself, and or and and also there are times when simply your capacity for holding the sensation kind of gets overwhelmed, so that you just it's just becoming a, a battle, and that's not really helpful. I mean the what we can really benefit from isn't so much, you know, being a warrior and toughing it out, but rather distinguishing the mental discomfort from the physical. So that there's a sensation which is unpleasant, but then there's this mental resistance to it. And it's the mental part that the Buddha kind of points to as the bigger problem and that if we can let go of the mental part the aversion then um, we can then it becomes much more manageable to work with the sensations and since of course physical discomfort is an inevitability in life at some point to be able to develop a balanced mind around it can really be a great tool for living 
um, particularly with aging, but, but obviously pain is not just something that happens to, with aging. You know, uh, I talked about this recently, it might have been here, but that um, even ascetic practices that, uh, you know, sp- spiritual seekers have, you know, uh, used and worked with over, over the millennia, uh, kind of, they're misunderstood as being kind of uh, self-inflicted suffering in as some kind of a penance uh, or punishment uh, for being impure or something. And and really, the the point of ascetic practice is actually to train the mind, uh, so that uh, you know if you. For instance, in the Theravada, Theravada monks only eat one meal a day, and they get plenty of nutrition from that. That they're healthy enough, uh, but they have to deal with being hungry and watching their mind and seeing if they can keep their mind balanced when hungry. Um, and of course, the Buddha pursued a lot of uh, ascetic practices, but to an extreme, and he kind of saw that. Uh, when they were taken to an extreme, they weren't helpful, but that a certain amount of uh, that practice was really effective and, and useful. And so he you know, set up these kind of boundaries for the behavior of the monks like that. Uh, but so sitting in our meditation posture is, in a sense, an ascetic practice. You know, it doesn't, it's certainly not, marketed that way in our culture it's actually marketed in the opposite way as as a way to comfort and pleasure uh, but uh, simply to close your eyes and um, not move is to deprive yourself of a certain sense experience sense pleasure of distraction uh, you know and and then to uh, watch the mind uh, is a is so challenging so a lot of what we're doing is really watching how the mind reacts to discomfort. And that discomfort might just be boredom. You know, what do I do with that? And, and trying to let go of that and, and just be, you know, hold our experience with kind of a balanced mind. So, so I don't really separate the challenge of the body from the challenge of the mind. It's all part of the same uh, sort of um, uh, uh, fundamental uh, purpose of practice to explore. Uh, so, so even when we're, so getting back to your question, when we're in that situation of getting having discomfort, certainly the first thing we want to do is see if we can be with the experience. You know, and, and so there's the mindfulness of the experience because the first thing that the mind does with pain is that it tries to move away from it. And so we never really get to see pain. That's, of course, one of the... Uh, motivations behind addiction is to just shut out all pain and discomfort. So just bringing mindfulness to it actually exposes us to a whole area of life that we ordinary, ordinarily miss. Yeah. 
and that in itself, I think, can be really enriching in a way. It's like to discover, oh, this is what pain is. <laughs> I mean, uh, because if we if we choose not to feel that, then we're really choosing not to be fully alive. So there's this. That part of it is kind of the starting point of just to explore it and feel it and see what it's like. And it turns out to be actually quite interesting. And what we call pain is just sensation that comes to us. All sensation just exists on a spectrum from what we call pleasure to what we call pain, right? Uh, you know, and a lot of that definition is is mental. I mean, look at the the sadomasochist, right? So, or the masochist, I should say. The, you know, the, the masochist is somebody who t- who enjoys something that we ordinarily call pain, uh, which just proves that it's it's mental. It's how it's defined. Uh, even something like an orgasm, you know, if you had that sensation in your knee, you'd probably go to the doctor. And you would be like, oh, God, oh, that's, oh, that's, what the hell? You know, but we, because we define it as pleasure, it's actually, we, that's how we see it. I mean, if you hear people having sex, it doesn't really sound like they're enjoying themselves a lot of the time. I, I, I try to avoid that as so much as possible, but on occasion, it's happened. I don't, sorry I got there, but... Uh, I mean, this is what this is how it becomes interesting, right? That we start to explore this not as just like, oh, this is bad, this hurts, I don't like, how do I, what do I do, what should I do, you know? So, uh, but yeah, of course, you come to the point where it's like, okay, this is really unpleasant, and I'm just not able to hold it. The aversion is overwhelming me, and then you move. And but when you move, the movement is done with intention and with mindfulness. Because the point of this ultimately is can I be mindful with all experiences? Very interesting to feel the experience of relief, of pain going away. You know, there are some who would argue that pleasure is just the absence of pain. Uh, I'm not going to claim that, but certainly there's a tremendous sense of relief and you feel and to, and to Pay attention, you know, if your knee is burning and you shift your position and you just watch it. And then you notice what happens to your mind, right? All of a sudden there's this, ah, right? It's a mental relief as well as a physical one. So that's the greater point is that we really just want to explore all of this, not set up some idea of a right or wrong way to meditate or what's the best thing to do or... Uh, but to but to explore it all with this curiosity. Thank you. Sometimes you get more than you asked for around here. <laughs> Anybody else want to test me? I know that's not quite the way right way to put it. There's somebody way in the back. This will be trouble. Um, what would you recommend for someone who's starting meditation? Like the beginning aspects, sort of the foundation of the practice are. Um, 
You mean in terms of technique, or you just mean in in more general terms? Technique. How, how to get started? Kind yeah. Of a, what? Yes. Foundation technique. How to get started? That yeah. sort of. Okay. Well, really, I think the f- primary, the first most important thing. <laughs> there's a few most important things, but the first most important thing is to do is to make it a regular part of your day. So make it a daily thing, right? There. Technique isn't so important, but uh, the the what we teach around here, which goes by various names, sometimes it's called mind, mindfulness, sometimes it's called insight meditation, is a blend of uh, a concentration practice that tries to pay attention to the breath, and then what we call an insight practice that tries to observe the experience in this broader way, kind of the way I was talking about observing your pain, right? So that's not just concentrating on this experience. It's kind of observing the the context of it and coming to understand your relationship to something. So uh, the instruction that I gave tonight is meant to be actually kind of an introductory uh, uh, instruction. My basic approach is to first get established in a posture that's comfortable but not too comfortable, so you're not to meditate on the couch uh, just because it's too, something too soft. You want to sit on a firm, and if you're sitting on the, you know, on the ground, great, but in a very stable way. And once you establish the posture, it's really the main thing that we do is we just use the sensations of the breath as a focus. And then when we notice the mind has wandered, we come back to the breath. Um, there's a lot that can come f- out of that, but that's kind of the, the basic starting point if you're just trying to get started. Um, I, when I started to meditate, when I got that, first got that instruction, I found it to be insufficient. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem to... I didn't know what to do with it. So I learned uh, uh, a practice called noting, which, where you start to notice, note the breath. So you start saying in, out, in, out. As you're feeling the breath, you're also sort of making this mental note. And then when your mind wanders, making the mental note, thinking, thinking, just sort of saying that to yourself, sort of acknowledging, oh yeah, I'm thinking. And then coming back to in out, so that's a good way to kind of keep the mind busy, like because uh, it's going to be busy anyway. So you kind of put something in there that will keep you on track. So try that. Did you get the, get all that? In out, thinking, thinking. Just do that. Well, uh, let's take our little break. We'll take about 10, 12 minutes and then come back. Thank you.
Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, one of the ways that, uh, particularly the twelve-step world, is different from the Buddhist world is that uh, the twelve steps have a tradition uh, to not be involved in outside issues, as they say, which. You know, which you know, is a is a valuable protection to the reco- recovery work. Um, the, you know, Buddhism addresses more more general suffering than just addiction, obviously. And um, I was on a call with James Barrows this week, uh, and. He was kind of talking about, and, and his. If you don't know who he is, he's one of the founders of this center, and he teaches uh, in Berkeley. He has a regular class at Berkeley, Insight Community of Berkeley, and and he travels worldwide. He wrote a, has a great program and a book called Awakening Joy, which uh, really uh, has been uh, tremendous help to me. But he's really uh, turning also towards this. Uh, this kind of uh, engaged Buddhism, kind of more, more uh, looking at social and environmental issues, uh, and trying to uh, be responsible as a, a member of the world, you know, a human. Uh, and and you know, the, this particularly um, some of this kind of engagement, increased engagement, uh, was uh, kind of got a particular kind of kick, uh, kickstart uh, in 2007 when Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote this piece called A Challenge to Buddhists, which was published in The Lion's Roar. Uh, And and I'm just going to read you a little bit of what he says. He says... um, it says, each morning I check out a number of internet news reports and commentaries on web, websites ranging from the BBC to Truthout. Reading about current events strongly reinforces for me the acuity of the Buddhist words, the Buddha's words, the world is grounded upon suffering. Almost daily I'm awed by the enormity of the suffering that assails human beings on every continent. And he sort of goes on in that way, and then he says, Seeing the immensity of the world's anguish has raised in my mind questions about the future prospects for Buddhism in the West. I have been struck by how seldom the theme of global suffering is thematically explored in the Buddhist journals and teachings with which I am acquainted. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles as the gnawing of discontent the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or with a bow to Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often I feel our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering 
that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world population. Pretty intense. It says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that, in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned quietism. It is true that Buddhist meditation requires uh, seclusion and inwardly focused depth, but wouldn't the embodiment of Dharma in the world be more complete by also reaching out and addressing the grinding miseries that are ailing humanity? So, uh, you know, it's kind of a call to action, and and if you don't know who Bhikkhu Bodhi is, he's best known for having translated much of the Pali Canon. So he spent about 30 years in Sri Lanka just studying this ancient dead language and translating it for us so that we could understand what the Buddha taught is uh, the you know, em- embodiment of a, of a scholar monk and a practitioner monk uh, who, you know, after all that time and all those translations which you can find in the bookstore here and which have been hugely influential in my life and my practice and my teachings, he moved back to the West and has taken up this uh, challenge. And, and he, shortly after this article appeared, uh, some of his followers took him up on it and th- th- they and he started something called Buddhist Global Relief, which uh, seeks to relieve hunger. Uh, the, the Buddha said that the most basic form of suffering and the worst form of suffering is hunger. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi thought that would be a good orientation. And of course, helping people that are hungry doesn't have any sort of political implications. Uh, it doesn't align you with any uh, you know, particular uh, ideology. And, and in fact, Buddhist Global Relief works with organizations all over the world in all kinds of countries, not just in Buddhist countries. It even works in the United States uh, because it turns out there are people who are hungry here, in case you didn't notice. So, uh, you know, I find that very inspiring and I also find it a little intimidating, you know. Um, I'll say that they, they have a each year different... Um, uh, Air, um, like uh, Buddhist Global Relief groups, can't think of the right word for it, but that'll do, uh, that are located around the country uh, in usually late September, early October, they have uh, walks to, to help, just to bring attention to uh, this issue and to their organization. So it happens that they do that in the Bay Area on the first Saturday in October, which for the last couple of years has been a day that I was teaching the retreat that I just uh, mentioned to, uh, to you before. So that's going to be on October 5th if you're interested in going along on it. The, lo- the last time I went on that walk, it was in San Francisco, and we, and we walked from one Buddhist center to another, at, at which every place we went they gave us food, which I thought was ironic, but it was pleasant. 
So your blood sugar was taken care of. We ended up at the uh, Zen Center. And, uh, so that was a really great, great day. Um, so if you're interested in, in sort of participating in that and you're not coming on the retreat, uh, I hope you'll check that out. But I, I, I want to see if I can relate uh, these bigger issues that range from hunger, you know, it's, to in the, the climate crisis, the environmental crisis, uh, and as well as uh, economic uh, inequality, it, it, it relate them actually to recovery and addiction. You know, our last Republican president famously said that we were addicted to oil, and which was, you know, good to hear. Uh, not that we didn't know, but it was good to see that recognized, a, a sort of honest honesty about that. But but it didn't really capture what our addiction is, because we're we're living in a weird world, you know, that we created, right? Which is what makes it even weirder because we create so much suffering for ourselves. And so one of the ways that I see is, uh, I think it's not so much that we're addicted to oil, we're addicted to living in a certain way, you know? And, um, And I'm not putting myself up as someone who's free of that addiction. I am not in recovery from my car, you know. I am no doubt, you know, addicted to my car, you know. Uh, and, but by our, you know, our group acceptance of that addiction, you know, we accept the results of it, right? You know, very hard to look at, really, honestly. I just think that we should be honest with ourselves, though. I mean, obviously, this country is also addicted to guns. You know, we just, we are. You know, we can't let go. Uh, you know, I define addiction as a compulsive behavior that has, that I don't have really control over my impulse and that has a harmful result. So I don't consider that, you know, somebody can be addicted to Game of Thrones. You know, people will say, oh, I'm addicted to that TV show. Unless you're, like, quitting your job to stay home, which, you know, people get addicted to the video game or to games, whatever they're now called, uh, you know, who actually quit their jobs, right? And, and people get addicted to pornography. People get addicted to a lot of, you know, to, to food to the point of harming themselves. Uh, but, so... And, and the way we t- treat our relationship to guns is just addictive. There's no other way of characterizing it to me because otherwise I'd just call it insane, you know. And it's not insane, right? It, it's, it's compulsive. So, you know, to, to look at our... So, uh, and, and to look on the economic level, you know, we're, we're addicted to greed, so, I mean, corporations are so interesting, <laughs> when especially since they're defined as, as people. But 
the word corporate, corp, you know, corporation comes from the word for a body, right? So even the original idea of a corporation was that it was kind of a person, which is a sort of appropriate because they behave just like people, right? Just more, more, more. They behave like addicts. But, but it's like, again, like this unconscious behavior. It's a compulsive behavior that, that doesn't really... Uh, one of the aspects of addiction is that when you're in the throes of addiction, you're not thinking about the results of your actions, right? And that characterizes all of these things. Are, you know, the, the corporations don't think about the effects that they're going to have. Uh, gun owners or, you know, the NRA or whoever, you know, the, well, it's the, presumably the, the gun manufacturers that are just trying to make money. They don't really care. You know, they'd make widgets if they could make billions off that, right? It's not a matter. They don't care that the, the product is this or that. But this, uh, you, you know, it's the driven by the... So, so in a way, it's like, uh, you know, when we look at the, what the Buddha talked about as the poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. Well, greed is like, that's the essence of addiction, right? So we're driven by this. And it's just so... I mean, I had a really hard week. I don't know about you guys. Uh, it was painful this week. Just painful to see what, you know, in our country, what we're doing to ourselves. We are doing it to ourselves. You know, that's, the, that's what's so painful about it. Nobody's doing it to us. Nobody invaded our country, despite the claims of certain people, you know, to, to make us suffer in this way. But it's also very, like, America-centrific to think, oh, we're the only ones who have problems. I was on a, a call today with a group of people in a, a teacher training where I'm mentoring, and one of them lives in Burma, and he works for an organization that's a... Um, you know, working working with the Rohingya, and who, if you're not familiar with them, Muslim community in Burma, a Buddhist country, and the Burmese monks there are telling people to go kill them. You know, it just okay. That's Buddhism. Wow. You know, so people sometimes say, "Well, are do Buddhist countries ever have war?" Like, you know, having Buddhism as a label doesn't protect you from anything. But he, you know, he was going and visiting uh, one of the camps where the, the people, you know, their, the mosque across the street had been burned down. Uh, people are, uh, you know, there's a genocide there. So it's not just Americans that we're bad, you know. Uh, it's all over the world. It's human, it's human behavior, right? And, and it's not separate from addiction to me. It's, and that, to me, it's part of the beauty of recovery that when we get into recovery, we don't just stop, you know, we don't just address that. If we're truly in recovery and recovering, we're not just addressing this substance abuse or whatever the addictive behavior is. We, that's our entryway into seeing the, these broader, core issues that drive us, right? 
That's what I think why people in recovery are drawn to the Dharma, to Buddhist teachings, because they they take that starting point of a clinging and attachment and they open it up into a broader broader way of understanding it. You know, and there's a beauty to what we do that an elegance to the 12 steps that, you know, uh, that, of course, I've been exploring for a long time, that, you know, we, we would love to be able to see that applied on some kind of a global, uh, communal level where people acknowledged the, their powerlessness over this greed, over this hatred, you know. And then, you know, turned their will in their life over. What would that look like? You know, to living in harmony. You know, I think that's what I that's what I would ask people to turn it over to. If I were, if I were like, you know, the God of the world, and I was going to ask people to work the steps, I would say, turn it over to living together in harmony. Not because the the essence of greed and hatred is conflict, right? It's conflict between individuals, between societies, between companies, between countries. We know that we can uh, take, that everybody can be taken care of. At least, you know, I believe that everybody could be taken care of on this planet, that there doesn't have to be the level of suffering that there is but we're driven by this compulsion. So if we did that, we admitted we were powerless and then turned our will and our lives over to living in harmony and then we did a little inventory. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) Take some work. And we made amends. That's what the reparations are about, right? Making amends. Yeah. It'd be nice. <laughs> I, I guess, I don't know if it's crazy but to think that or to imagine that, but, uh, you know, I think we, we do have to have a vision. You know, we have to have a vision of what, uh, rather than, oh, we have to get rid of that, we have to stop that, you know. We have to have a vision of what, what a, a harmonious, recovered society would look like. And, um, yeah, and I, and I just I think this is kind of a doorway into that to, to see, seeing it. Um, we define ourselves so much as uh, as what we're we oppose, and, and we're very much in a in a state in this country. We're very much in a state of uh, defining ourselves by what we oppose. Um, so I got kind of depressed this week actually and I, and I really uh, I was like I don't want to go out to Spirit Rock and try to be a teacher you know uh, sometimes I just am like why do I have to do this <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I have anything for you uh, you know and I I was like, well, it's August, step eight. Oh, great. I'll talk about making a list. And that'll be exciting. Um, 
But, uh, well, I'll, I'll just mention, maybe I'll think of something else to say, that uh, next month on September 15th, they're going to have a day-long event here called No Time to Lose, a Dharma Response to Climate Change with James Barras, Joanna Macy, who, uh, if you've never heard her speak or read her work, you should come and see her. She's uh, one of the real heroes, uh, brilliant. Uh, and uh, there will be some music and and a couple of other people like Jack Cornfield and Renner Rolanalio are going to be here uh, remotely or by recording or something. Anyway, that, uh, you know, there's, it's very interesting, you know, I, I certainly, um, you know, when I started to practice meditation 40 years ago, the, uh, there wasn't much talk about this, uh, and now there's much more of an awareness of it. So I, I know that uh, people don't come particularly to this class to, you know, he, hear about these um, issues really so much. Um, but I, I think it's, I think we do have a unique perspective as addicts in recovery that we can understand, at least understand, uh, if not change. I don't know what we can do to change, but I, I do think that one of the, one of the things that's really painful is when we don't understand why the world is the way it is. And that's, you know, the, my book, Living Kindness, uh, which is, you know, kind of about applying practice of loving kindness to our lives beyond just the cushion. You know, I have a chapter called The Greed, Hatred, and Delusion Report, and it's about reading the news as a report on greed, hatred, and delusion rather than thinking about it being about particular uh, events. Uh, because, you know, when you look at the particular events, they get overwhelming. And, and sometimes you have to step back and put them in a context of understanding, oh, this is what human beings do. Now, how am I going to respond to that? And, you know, I don't, I don't blame anybody for pulling away and trying to avoid it. You know, people say to me, oh, I just don't watch the news. I, I totally understand that. I, I didn't vote until I was 34, you know. I, I was like a hippie who like, was like, screw those people. They don't, uh, there's, you know, it's all corrupt. It's all, you know. Um, so I really, I understand um, you know, that pa- passive or apathetic response because it's, it's, it can be overwhelming. Um, but, uh, you know, if we can, I think we, we need to do what we can do. And, and it's, it's hard to figure out what that means. Um, So I'm sorry I can't be very useful tonight. Uh, I, uh, um, 
I, I kind of watched too much MSNBC this week, I think is what happened. I said, I'm grateful that I had to come out here tonight and I couldn't watch that. And, uh, no Twitter while I'm uh, teaching. Uh-huh. You know, there was actually you know, a headline in the New York Times, I think yesterday, that a, a UN science panel pointing to um, you know a huge crisis in just food coming like soon you know and, and we keep saying well unless we do this it's pretty soon going to be uh, it's just kind of too late and uh, so uh, what are you going to do I, I, uh, I'll say something like that specific that I'm that I plan to do, and I have to I have to follow through in this. So I'm going to speak it here, and then you guys can hold me to it. Uh, I'm thinking that going to Milwaukee. And helping people go to the polls next year might help win the state of Wisconsin. And that that could be the critical thing. So I was thinking, I could get a plane ticket to Milwaukee and rent a van. And I'm sure there's an organization I could easily find who would say, who would have a list of people who needed rides. So I I need to do something like that, something real, you know, because it's not enough to um, give Dharma talks. Now, this is real, but, you know, you, I'm preaching to the, the choir, as they say. I'm not changing anything. So, so anybody want to go to Milwaukee next year, next November? Okay. You can fly out. We'll rent a couple of vans. Good, Eleanor. You'll keep me on that. Were you going to say something? Dan? Yeah, Sad, angry, um, and and for and 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 wanting to do something. It was like uh, yeah. back in the. Uh, I felt you know during the Vietnam War. Yes. I felt like I I, I had a say. We we marched on Washington. Yeah. We went to the Democratic Convention in Chicago. We. Yeah. I felt like we were being heard. Yeah. And now I don't feel like I'm being. I don't feel like I'm being heard. I don't yeah. think. I don't feel like I'm able to do anything and it makes me very sad and very angry and and then I was, as with you I was saying well I could try to impart some wisdom and but around here that doesn't do any good everybody <laughs> thinks the same thing um, I know so go then, register move to Wisconsin and register to vote there yeah so then I was going to drive cross country and and maybe take up meetings in diner you know in little diners yeah. or something and try to try to understand where all those people are coming from um so I like your idea of, of going to, uh, to Milwaukee. I mean, I wrote Nancy Pelosi to, to see what I could do to try to help. You know, I mean, it's um, um, oh, the first remarkable. time I've ever thought about getting into politics. Yeah, I mean, I, me neither. Uh, I made some calls for Obama in 2008. That's the extent of my... But 
I will say that it's also what we're all feeling. It's it's a it's it's felt. You know, it's it's not individual, and you know, you see that. I mean, my optimistic side, which I forgot about, up to, <laughs> because you know you get depressed and you just forget, like literally. Uh, my optimistic side really believes that the. Things things will change. You know, I I don't believe that the current president is going to become a dictator, and that we're going to give up. You know, I believe that there's a going to be a huge turn, and that it's that even what happened this week was important in that. I mean, it was truly for all of us. It was incredible to watch. You know. those kids in Sandy Hook and, and have nothing happen. And Obama talked about that, about how just he couldn't believe that, that nothing would happen. That, but strange, strange things happen, you know. There's, it's kind of like, just to bring it back to the addiction, it's like you never know what's going to cause you to hit bottom. And clear, it really feels like our country kind of hit bottom about guns this week. Uh, damn close, because I saw something about that guy from Kentucky who seems to run the country being willing to actually discuss something. As, that to me is a miracle. So, um, and in case you think that's political, the first hint, the first precept is to not kill. <laughs> So let's that you know. So allowing, just giving people the means to kill, and you know, a whole, a huge percentage of the what is it, thirty thousand people that die by guns in this country every year? A huge percentage of them are that. They're not this, you know. And so we're literally killing ourselves, you know, and just. Handing people the means, but yeah, yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I, you know, it's just hard to imagine that humans are going to uh, not get smart at some point. You know? uh, yes, hello. Hi. I was thinking about the various things you talked about. Talked about addiction earlier in its various forms. It occurs to me when I'm being really mindful, which is, you know, here and there. Sure. What typically comes up for me is fear. Uh There's a lot of things that masquerade as, you know, something beyond that. But the truth is that fear, like I think that fear is a source of greed. Fear Fear what? Greed. Uh huh. I'm not going to have enough. You're going to have more than me. When you're Here, mindful, this comes up, or when you're not mindful? Well, or, or you mean when you're mindful, you're aware of it? I'm aware of my own fear. I see. Yeah. And then, you know, that can lead to depression if I stay in it long enough. Yeah. Um, it's just been recently, as I meditate and try to be present, I realize how much fear I have. 
And yeah. I guess I'm extending my comment to this, or a question, if you will. Oh. I think that's what's wrong with the world. The people that are racist, they're afraid of... Right. Right? Of I course, mean, yeah. That's what makes me so sad. It's just there's so much fear. It's yeah. like we're addicted to it. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, that's, that's an interesting one, too, because, you know, I think of addiction as... It's a search for some kind of comfort, you know, and and so sometimes it's a search, it's an effort to get pleasure, and sometimes it's the effort to get rid of pain. So I'm I'm not sure how racial what racial fear how that fits into that. Maybe maybe there's uh, what Wait, we people are afraid of losing power. Well, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, there's a really interesting book, um, and if I can remember the title, Jared Diamond's first book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. That's one. Which is about its underlying thesis is Europeans thought that they were uh, smarter, basically, and more sophisticated than the indigenous cultures that they encountered in the world and when they colonized the world. And, and that that was a misunderstanding, that... The, and, and he then explains why certain areas of the world developed more rapidly than others, but uh, creating the illusion that, uh, oh, well, because we have all this technology and these indigenous people here don't have that, then we're smarter than them. But it actually turned out to be a different causality, right? It was much more about agriculture and the availability of of different um, products and, and resources. But, nonetheless, that illusion persists, right? That illusion that began as Europeans started to travel around the world in the 15th century and discover these, discover, <laughs> you know, these areas, that, you know, this belief that Europeans were smarter and, and then Europeans started to define themselves as white for some reason, just sort of a weird way to define yourself. Uh, it's because of the color of their skin. That's what makes them dumb. Like, just no, nothing, no sense in that. Um, but that's, I mean, that's the root of it as, as far as I understand it. That it's just kind of... Um, misunderstanding of cause and effect and uh, and then as you say sort of you know a fear then of like well if we stop being white then you know we're gonna all we're all gonna regress to being like those savages you know that oh god interesting but then an idea like that gets planted and it really doesn't, it can become completely disconnected from its roots, right? 
and it just gets passed on from generation to generation and to, uh, so that there's no no more even a, a, any con- connection to logic it's just purely this is the way it is and that's what you teach your children and that's what communities believe and societies build up with these power structures and uh that's delusion. That's the third poison, right? Delusion. Uh, the misunderstanding of cause and effect, the misunderstanding of reality, the misunderstanding of what causes suffering. The, the delusion is that if I get more stuff and more power and more control, then I'll be free from suffering. If I get rid of all those uncomfortable things and get rid of that stuff that I don't like, then I'll be free from suffering. Uh, you know. That's uh, it's almost as if uh, the more you accumulate, the more of a panic you get into, because your problem isn't being solved. You know, like I must need another billion. You know, because that first billion just didn't do it for me, and. Uh, You know, that, that's sort of the whole quality of our culture, you know. It's, if I could just have a faster phone, if my phone were just faster and had more memory and a better camera, then I'd be okay. You know, it's like constant, like, grasping on this, from the trivial to the, you know, not so trivial. Constant chasing after this delusion that, that somehow... Uh, something out there is going to solve this in here. So then it's, you know, if I can kill those people, then, you know, that's the ultimate, you know, delusion. If I can get rid of those people, then I'll be okay. I'll be safe. Yeah? Hi. Hi. So I called a friend of mine in AA and I told him the story and he said it's fear. Uh It's all fear. And so, and it's true that Buddhism says that greed and fear, greed and hatred and delusion are the problem. And AA says that fear is the corrosive thread. Yeah. So I called another guy in AA and I said, he says it's fear and he says it's greed. What is it? And he said, they're both right. He said, and I can't figure it out really. I can't really explain it. But the way it works is he said there's two two kinds of um, fear. Fear, I'm not going to get what I want. Fear, I'm going to lose what I have. Right. And both of those are greed. Yeah. Also. Right. Somehow the fear and the greed become the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's great. More proof that Buddhism and AA work together. <laughs> yeah, they're, def- they're definitely on this. They're definitely on the same track. You know. But it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Thank you. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I do tend to come at it more from the greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, 
view, but but um, hatred is certainly driven by fear. You know, it's uh, and then I, I like that the way you connected it to to greed as well. Yeah. So uh, uh, first of all, I promise, like I'll be better next month. You know? I don't like to make promises, but I'm pretty sure I will be. Uh, also, if you're interested, I don't know how many of you know who Ajahn Pasno is, but he's a renowned uh, Buddhist monk who uh, was recently actually honored by the king of Thailand. He's a, he's a Canadian, actually. And he was the co-abbot of a Bayagiri monastery up in Ukiah uh, for many years. And his they're having a birthday party for him tomorrow at Abayagiri Monastery. Tomorrow. I said tomorrow twice. No, I've said it three times. Uh, so if you're interested in getting some really g- good pure Dharma, uh, look look for that event. Go, to, go up there. They have a meal at 11 o'clock. And if you can take food, great. What? 10.30. It gets earlier and earlier, those greedy monks. You can't wait. Uh, and, uh, no, and forgive me for saying that. About them. What? Redwood Valley, right. So Abayagiri is spelled A-B-H-A-Y-A-G-I-R-I for people who are typing this into their phones. And uh, everybody's welcome. And you can take food or you can just go and eat food. Uh, I'm going to go up, but I'm going to probably go a little later. They'll have like a a talk probably about 1 o'clock because I don't want to get up that early. But um, that will cleanse you of this evening's uh, (laughs) dharma. Yes, Andy. Reflections from anyone tonight? Yes. I'd like to just say something that might be out of place. I know this isn't a political uh, rally, but on the topic of this evening. Dump Trump. No, sorry. uh, Yeah. Four more years. Yeah. (laughs) No, I've been uh, pretty uh, interested in in Marion Williamson. Uh huh. I know. Yes. Uh, no, she's not. So she's a. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to believe. Right. Right. I'm sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's the only one that seems to be speaking a language. 
Well, yeah. And, yeah. I don't know. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But no. I'm really interested in her and really hopeful about her, even though uh-huh. it's, it's not the greatest chances. I just think that, <laughs> no. you know, I, I just pray that we get to the point where we collectively say, you know, our leaders are, should be spiritual leaders as yeah. well as the political, economic, and, yeah. you know, regulatory. Yeah. <laughs> right. What we need is someone who gives it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think it's it's great that uh, like somebody who's kind of coming from their motivation is overtly spiritual, uh, and and having that voice in there, uh, I think it's really is great as well. Uh, I, I actually. Um, I don't know if you listen to Pod Save America, but uh, they one of them complained about the fact that she said, "I'm the only one who's running, who's motivated by love." And then he said, "No, actually, that's Cory Booker's uh, platform." You know, so so I think there is, I think there, you know, are moral principles and moral motivation behind a lot of. Candidates that they don't can't usually speak about it, especially in democratic circles. Um, uh, Tim Ryan actually wrote a book on mindfulness, um, so it's there. It's just not as obvious as, as for her, you know. You know. No, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Well, and I think it's one of the problems that the progressives have had in this country that they're afraid to talk about spiritual stuff because it's like, oh, we're, you know, they're afraid they're going to alienate their atheist base or something. I don't, you know, I, and I, I'm always like, well, you know, you're allowing, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, morality is out the, is, just not popular anymore <laughs> on the right, for sure, as it used to be their big thing. Anyway, I was thinking about what this would sound like if we could roll it, like we put it on its side and rolled it. I don't know. I, I don't want to get in trouble. It might do damage to the bell. Yeah, it might do damage to the bell. So. I don't want to do the damage to the bell. So, um, well, I don't know if you can do a little. There we go. Let's sit for a couple minutes and try to recover from this evening.
May we each find a way to keep love in our hearts. To stay connected to this world with love. May we bring wisdom and compassion to the suffering that we see. And may we find some way to do our part in ending that suffering. Thank you for your attention and your presence tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.